And this morning we'll look at the Lord prays for his own. And we'll look at verses 9 and 10 of our text this morning. I think it's a overwhelming feeling sometimes to know that people are praying for you. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for those who pray uh, for me. And, uh, uh, you know, when you face uh, situations that seem like they're helpless and you have a need, uh, there's just some comfort in the knowledge that someone is uh, praying for you and you're not really facing it alone. Uh, And I believe it was Oswald Chambers who said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. I want to think about that one just a little bit, but that's, a, I think, a well-said statement. You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. As wonderful it is to have our friends, and even some strangers sometimes that might be praying for you. There might be somebody that's praying for your family or our church uh, that we probably don't even know. But that's a great comfort to know that people are praying. And that's uh, precisely what we find here in our text. There are, uh, There is a tremendous comfort in the great wonder that even our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is praying for us. If you want anybody to be praying for you, it would be the Lord, wouldn't it be? But Jesus Christ prays for his own. And what he prays will encompass the balance of this chapter, actually. Um, but now we need to consider why our Lord prays for us. And so in grasping the why, uh, we're left with a profound sense of adoration of, uh, of the Lord. Why does he pray for his own? We're going to look at a number of reasons. First of all, because of his relationship. Because of his relationship. Now, we could probably just make a blanket statement. You know, Jesus prays for us because he loves us. Uh, that'd be true, right? Jesus prays for us because he loves us. And that might be sufficient, but that while that is true, it seems that the casual use of the word love in our day, we might miss the depth of the rich, richness that's provided for us in the words of our text. And I believe it's important to understand that the tre- chief nature uh, of prayer is relational. It's relational. By this I mean that because we have a relationship to God through Christ, we can commune with him in prayer. We pray based upon our relationship that we have with Christ and the righteousness as the ground of our, his righteousness as the ground of our prayers. You know, many t- people talk about prayer. You know, our thoughts and prayers are with you. We hear, hear that even on the news uh, programs, you know, our thoughts and prayers. Well, uh, how many of those people who are saying those things are really truly have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And if they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, their prayers aren't going any farther than the ceiling. And uh, they can pray all they want to, but uh, you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ in order to have an effective prayer life. And we're not just asking for things, or we're not just offering thanks. I mean, it's good for us to be thankful. We need to thank the Lord every day for all that he's provided for us. But we're not just even talking about just thanks, but we're, uh, we're strengthened, we're nourished by our relationship to God in prayer. 
And the details of relationship were, uh, affect, uh, affected our Lord as well. We see his relationship to the Father. Uh, that's a very uh, strong theme throughout this prayer. Who is he praying to? Well, he's praying to his Father. And uh, uh, the relationship uh, uh, to his Father, and then is his relationship to the redeemed. The relationship is demonstrated as Jesus prays to the Father on behalf of his people. It's important that we understand the dynamics found in this relationship. Notice, first of all, it's showing the unity in the Godhead. Our Lord's prayer shows the unity found in the Godhead. All of us would agree that there are things perhaps about the Trinity that we really don't understand completely. It kind of mystifies us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How can that all be in one person but yet three separate persons? Uh, Someday when we get to heaven we're going to find out exactly how that works. But much of that we take by faith by what the Word of God teaches us. Uh, We do not grasp everything that we need to know about the solitary God in three persons, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the three persons of the Godhead are equal in power, in glory, in dignity, in strength, and yet at the same time there's no division in them in the terms of deity and essence or being. In other words, we're not talking about three gods Uh, But we're talking about one God who reveals himself uh, to us in these three distinct persons. And each member of the Godhead uh, has particular functions which he exercises in complete unity with the other uh, members of the Godhead. When it comes to our salvation, the Bible teaches us that the Father loves the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So God loves the world and he sends his Son. And then his Son uh, uh, mediates for us and redeems us. It was through his death on the cross uh, that uh, provided our salvation. And then the Holy Spirit applies the work of redemption, bears witness to the Father's sending and the Son's redeeming. Now, when Jesus is praying here, he's doing so as a man, a man who's dependent upon God. God has no need to pray to God, but Christ had laid aside his prerogatives as deity, and as a perfect man, he offers his prayers to the Father. And yet, in the words of his prayer, we see that his appeal was not that of a sinner. When we pray, we pray as sinners, but as Here, the Lord Jesus is equal to the Father, and his prayer expresses the great unity that is found in the Godhead. Listen again to the words there in verse 9 and 10. It says, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now consider what he said. When referring to those whom, to whom Jesus prayed, uh, or uh, the redeemed, he stated that not only did they belong to Jesus Christ, but they were perfectly belonging to the Father as well. And he continues in the next uh, sentence there by stating that all things that belong to Christ are, or all things which Christ possesses are also possessed or belonging to the Father, and vice versa. All that the Father has, owns, and possesses is that that belongs to Jesus Christ. 
I wonder, can we make the same declaration? Surely all that we have belongs to the Lord. Can we say that? Everything that I have belongs to the Lord. And all that God has, does it belong to us? Well, we cannot make that claim exactly uh, since we would be guilty of lying and blasphemy. But that's not the case with Jesus. He prayed as a man, yet at the same time he was also God. He was not a lesser God than the Father. He was uh, not in any way inferior to the Father. There are no attitudes that the Father uh, has which the Son does not have. Uh, There's no powers which the Father possesses which the Son did not possess. Uh, There's no glory which the Father contains that was not clearly the Son's as well. And all that God was, is, and shall be, He was, and is, and shall be in Christ Jesus. So we see the unity between the Father and the Son in this prayer. Uh, Jesus was not asking something contrary to the will of the Father. And that's why I can state that the very essence of the will of God for your life is found in prayer. All that Jesus cried, or Christ, Jesus Christ prayed fully accorded with the will of the Father. Now, if you want to know how to live the Christian life and what things you ought to have as a priority in living for Christ, then you study this, this chapter, John chapter 17. And you study what Jesus prayed concerning his people. Jesus prayed to the Father because of the unity of their relationship. He prayed for us because that was a good, the good pleasure of the Father and for his Son, the Mediator. So it's showing the unity of the Godhead. Secondly, it's revealing the uniqueness in the relationship. There's a relation, another relationship that comes into the picture here. It's the relationship which Jesus Christ has with the redeemed. Uh, there's a profound statement our Lord makes that should encourage every believer here this morning and bring every unbeliever to their knees. He says, I pray for them. Who's them? Let's pray for his followers, his children, his, those who the Father has given him. But then he goes on to say, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus does not pray for those who do not belong to him. At least not in his prayers of mediation here. Uh, Other than his merciful prayer at the cross, remember he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You'll find that all the prayers of Jesus are focused upon the ones who he redeems. The world, the whole system of personalities, the philosophies, the attitudes, the practices that are against God, are against his will, has no part in the prayers of mediation. Jesus' concern is for those those whom he died to redeem. Now, again, I want to uh, point out the balance of the prayer in John 17. It deals with the specifics of what Jesus is asking on behalf of the redeemed. Now at this point we're seeing the clarifications of why he asks on our behalf and for whom he makes these requests. It is for those whom he died and he also intercedes. And he very emphatically states that his prayer is not for the world. 
And that's important. It's important that he prays for those for whom he died. He prayed for those whom he prays and uh, his death was specifically for those that God purposed to redeem. His blood was not shed carelessly or in a wasted manner, but his atoning blood was applied specific to sinners to redeem them from the curse of sin. Now, not all people belong to the Lord. Some people say, well, we're all God's children, right? Well, in a sense, yes, through creation, God uh, created everyone. All belong to God in the sense that all were created by God, but sin has separated us from God, and so we need to be born again. And the words of our text point to an even more specific and special relationship. It's a relationship that's been affected by redemption. It's those which thou hast given me, for whom Jesus has given eternal life. Who are they? Well, Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus intercedes for those who have drawn near to God through him. And that's simply coming to God for salvation through the merits of Jesus Christ. It's a relationship of faith in Christ, depending upon his merits alone that brings a sinner to God. So why does he pray for his own? Well, it's because of his relationship. Secondly, it's because of his stewardship. Our Lord takes seriously the divine offices on, uh, on his divine offices on our behalf. We've all been distraught when we hear about uh, people in political office that uh, don't do their job and they fail to discharge their duties. You know, when someone really messes up in our government, we say, well, that's, a, that's terrible. Seems like more and more of those kind of people today. But some of the trouble that has occurred in various parts of our own country have been a result of the dereliction of duty by someone holding office. But there is never a lack of faithfulness by our Lord in his stewardship in the holy offices which he received from the Father. What are those offices? Well, there's the pro- he's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king. And in those offices that he fulfills, he is ever faithful. As one who sanctifies us along with the Holy Spirit and glorifies us, he exercises his divine offices in faithfulness. He's conscious and on duty. I use the word stewardship on purpose. I think of church membership and of giving. You know, we think of stewardship. We're all stewards of, uh, of all that God has entrusted to us. And we're to faithfully manage and to utilize everything in life with a consciousness that belong, we belong to God and we must be, uh, everything we have must be used for His glory. And so in the same way, we're reminded by this text that the Father has entrusted uh, those uh, who He gave to the Son for faithful exercise of His duties. And apart from Jesus Christ's faithfulness in every way, we have no hope. So why does Jesus pray for his own? He's a faithful steward over the household of God. Notice, he's as a mediator. 
Now we've already noted in our study here that this prayer is chiefly meteorial. Uh, it uh, expresses the truth that Jesus Christ has finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Back in verse 4. And the statement refers to a very specific work of Jesus dying on behalf of sinners. He died to atone for their sins, to satisfy God's righteousness and justice, to take away the enmity between God and man. Jesus appeared in the, in the heavens for us before the throne of the Almighty. He offered his own blood to sat, satisfy all the demands of God. As a high priest, he offers the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. Paul reminds us, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, uh, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. You see, we cannot mediate ourselves because we're not qualified to do that before the throne of God. Even Aaron and his sons had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could appear before God on behalf of the people. But Jesus appeared once and for all, offering one sacrifice for sins for all times. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He had completed, he had accomplished the work the Father had sent him to do. So when we desire to appear before the Father, we do so through the work of our mediator, Jesus Christ. What right do you and I have to approach the throne of God? Well, what right, with all of our sinfulness and rebellion, do we have to ask God for the needs of our lives? Or even dare to offer worship to His holy name? That right comes through our mediator, one who pleads His own righteousness uh, and His blood in our behalf. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Again, that's... The writer of Hebrews tells us. And the reminder of the work of Christ is ever before the Father when we as sinners approach the throne. And we are to come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have new confidence due to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He prays for us because he remains our high priest, having a high priest over the house of God, Hebrews 10.21. By the way, I do not take house of God to mean a church or a church building or even the local church. I mean it to take the family of God. When you talk about a household, you're t that's a family term. And so he's our mediator, and then he's our sanctifier. As a sanctifier, we are uh, notice in the study of the remainder of this book, really, or this chapter, that the Lord addresses the whole subject of sanctification. It's a very important word for us to remember. Though it differs in function uh, from justification, it's linked to justification. Now, some have had the mistaken notion that you can be justified or declared righteous before God, but uh, not sanctified. Well, that's something you decide to do later, uh, they say, and perhaps opt out of if you want to. No, that teaching is foreign to the teaching of God's will or God's word. He who justifies us also sanctifies us. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him that are in 
Are ye in Christ Jesus, whom God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? Sanctification is that ongoing process by which we're purified, we're made holy in our actual practice. And it begins with the work of justification, and it's been applied to our lives. Jesus Christ made unto us sanctification, and then it continues on from there. I believe one of Paul's comments to Titus kind of gives us the truth with clarity. Turn with me just for a moment here uh, to Titus chapter uh, 2. Titus chapter 2, and notice with me what he says in Titus 2 verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority let no man despise thee you notice that salvation comes immediately uh, uh, comes immediately those uh, changes in character and attitude and actions and then coupled with the work of Jesus Christ is both the work of redemption and his purifying or sanctifying us. So and to come to faith in Christ is to receive the benefit of his work as a sanctifier. Certainly the Holy Spirit continues his work just as he applies the work of redemption, but it is no less work of Jesus Christ and a provision contained in redemption. So we see Christ praying on behalf of his own. Praise particularly for his uh, this work of sanctification to continue. Uh, we think of Philippians 1.6, He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is, intercedes for us as a good steward of his atoning work. He does not save us to drop us. Now we're hearing a lot of complaints these days about the poor follow-up that churches are doing with their converts. Listen, when Jesus Christ saves someone, he also follows up with. uh, And that's sanctification. Not only a mediator, a sanctifier, but he's also a glorifier. Our Lord prays that uh, for us that he has yet more than uh, he purposes to accomplish in our lives. Uh, The day will come when we will be glorified before the Lord with all the saints in heaven. We'll be removed from the presence of sin. We'll understand fully the power of the cross, the resurrection over sin. And all of the radiant glory of Christ's redemptive work will shine forth through us as displays of his great grace. He will be glorified by glorifying us. You know, it's interesting that the that Jesus views this glorifying not just as a future tense experience, but something that's very real in the very present time that we live. He says in verse 22 down in, in John 17, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. 
There's something about this glory of Christ, the essence of his being, the majesty of his divine personhood that he has given to us for right now, not just for the future. And this can be seen by noting that last phrase of our text here in verse 10, and I am glorified in them. So why does he pray for us? Why does he pray for his own? Because of his relationship, because of his stewardship, and thirdly, because of his workmanship. Yes, he glorifies us, but because of what he has done in us, he glorified. Uh, he is glorified in us as believers. And I think the key to understanding this is recognizing that we belong to Christ and consequently to the Father. And since we belong to the Father and the Son, our Lord works in us so that his glory might be displayed through us. We might say that he has a major investment in us. So he continually intercedes for us that his glory might be shown through us. You know, when you visit a high school, and I'm sure that's true here in Spooner as well as many schools around the area and around the world, it's what is true in my high school, you would notice various displays of worth and glory of the school. It's always kind of neat to see your picture up there sometimes, you know. Uh, if you could uh, be a part of a winning basketball team or a winning football team, or you could say, that's the trophy we won, you know. Well, that's the glory of the school. These trophies are describing various accomplishments. And many times there were more trophies for sports than there was for music for other subjects. And some people didn't quite, you know, like that. But there's been a uh, there have been all kinds of displays or banners that are hung in the rafters of a gymnasium that proclaim the worth and the glory uh, due to accomplishments. And you might say that the trophies and the banners announce the glory and the worth of a school. When the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to the account of a sinner, that sinner becomes a trophy and a banner. And so we can say, you know, if you're saved this morning, you are a trophy, you are a banner that's proclaiming the worth and glory of our great God who has shown forth his grace and mercy on your life. We become displays of what Christ has done. And these are displays about something that's not going to fade away. You know, every now and then they have to go and clean out those trophy cases of the old things from 1930 and 40, and they say, oh, those things are all moldy. And, you know, but here we have trophies of grace. Yeah, we're getting old physically, but we're trophies of grace for eternity. Ephesians 2.10, of course, familiar verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And right after the much-quoted passage concerning being saved by grace through faith, the apostle reminds us that we are his workmanship. We're his handiwork. The handiwork of God through Christ and all the changes that are brought to bear upon us, all the differences, uh, difference in our affections. You know, after you got saved, you don't love the same things you used to love. You have different affections. You have different desires, different goals. The apostle even goes so far as to tell us that the angels learn about the great glory and wisdom of God by seeing Christ's glory in us. It says in chapter 3, verse 10, to the intent that 
now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. See, all the glorious things God has done in redemption are reflected in the brilliant display of glory through the redeemed. Someone has stated, we are meant to be living proof of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has finished the work which the Father sent him to do. I like that. We are meant to be living proof that the Lord Jesus Christ has finished the work which his Father sent him to do. So how does he do that? Well, he does it internally. How is Christ glorified in us? He's glorified by accomplishing what the Father purposed him to do. He came to save a people for himself uh, who would be zealous for good works. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. But you know the natural tendency in all of us is not to live for God. Uh, The natural tendency for us is not to serve God, not to discipline ourselves uh, for godliness, but rather to live for ourselves, even as believers. That's the natural tendency. So in order to display his glory in us, our Lord had to change us from the inside out. Jesus Christ did not just come to deal with the symptoms of our sinful lives. He came to address the root cause of our sin with his mighty redemptive power. We must have the enmity removed between us and God. And the enmity causes a constant condemnation before the law of God. And we tremble to think that we will face the severity of divine judgment. But in Christ, the enmity is taken away and we're no longer under condemnation. We must have a new nature because of our natural man is corrupt in affections and desires. And so in Christ we're made new creatures. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The old patterns of our lives, the old affections, the old idolatries, the old things are passed away. We live in a constant sense of newness. And so our desires are affected. We love the things of God. We love the Word of God. We love obedience. What has been obnoxious to us concerning the Christian life now becomes delight. Can you think about the Apostle Paul? He used to go about killing Christians. He used to hate Christians with a passion. But then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and he got saved. And he had a whole new way of thinking. He had a a display of the fullness of God, the glory of Christ, in a manifestation of what Christ is, and Jesus revealed to him, and he reveals to us that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And I trust that this morning you can say that you know the reality of the mighty work of God within you. Can you say with, with Paul, though the out man, outward man perish, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day? It's not only internally, but externally. The internal work does not go into hiding. From the internal work, we find the glory of Christ being displayed externally so that Christ is evident in us, that people see Christ when they see us. When you consider that, it's overwhelming. To think that we we who are so undeserving are brought into this relationship with God through Christ, that the glory of Christ is to radiate through us. 
That is glory. That's the very reason for such glory to be displayed, and that is what the world about us must see as a testimony of God's work in Christ. And I would point out to you that while Christ is working in us, we're not just to be sitting here like the proverbial bump on a log. As he works in us, we're to be responding. Responding by action, by attitudes, by affection that display the grace of God. And we'd all agree that if an angel manifests the glory of God, that would be a very natural thing, wouldn't it? When the angels appeared at the empty tomb, they gave testimony of the resurrection, and the gospel writers record they were uh, there in, they didn't use these words, but they were there in dazzling apparel. You know, they were something that was really to behold. There's a radiance and a glory that was showing through them. But we'd expect that of angels, wouldn't we? But what about us as sinful people? Yet the Lord here declares, and I am glorified in them. We as poor vessels of clay, dead in our trespasses and sins, sons of Adam, imprisoned by sin, bound by spiritual darkness and deadness, these things are the very things that Jesus Christ came to set free, to glorify I hope we see an, a contrast. An angel dwells in the presence of the Almighty and is supposed to be radiant, but what about a redeemed, saved person? You know, if a jeweler wants to display a, the brilliance and beauty of a diamond, they don't usually put it on a white cloth. They put it on a black cloth. And they... Uh, so you can see... The contrast. And God has displayed the glory of His Son against the backdrop of our humanity. There's a very practical side to this manner of externally displaying the glory of Christ. You cannot work up this glory. If the Lord has not done a saving work in you internally, then you're not going to display something outwardly. But if He's done a work in you, you can be rest assured that he desires to show forth his brilliance, his beauty in it, of his holy life through you and even externally. While he is at work internally, we are not to be passive. We're not, uh, we are to be actively seeking to manifest this glory through our trust, through our obedience, through service, through faithfulness. Let me just mention in closing here a few ways in which we can glorify our Lord in our daily lives. We glorify Him by believing Him, by recognizing His glory. We are to give ourselves to knowing Christ in His fullness. How do you know Christ in His fullness? You spend time in His Word. The Word of God teaches us about Him and His glory. We're to believe His promises. We're to live those promises. We glorify Him by acknowledging that Jesus Christ is everything to us. There are no rivals when we come, it comes to our affections for him. It's a tragedy that uh, so many people profess to know Christ, but they live as though he has little place in their life. 
They show more affection for the world and the pleasures that the world offers than they do for Jesus. You look at their desires. You look at their, their affections. You look for their longings. You think, uh, what are they really living for? Are they for Jesus Christ or for, for the world? We glorify Him by casting aside every ill-placed longing and giving ourselves to adoring Him. We glorify Him by keeping quiet. No. We glorify Him by telling others. We tell others what He has done. You know, the world around us needs to know about Christ. Oh, well, they're on their own. They'll get there. You know, if they get there, they get there. And if they don't, they don't. That's not to be our attitude. We're to be ambassadors. God says we're ambassadors. We've been sent into the world to tell people about our great Redeemer. You see, most of the world, most of the people we talk to probably don't understand much about Jesus Christ, do they? The whole idea of the cross seems senseless. It seems silly. And yet we must proclaim with passion the glories of Jesus Christ, His saving work, so that sinners might be brought out of darkness into a right, into the light through Christ. We glorify Him also by living in such a way that Christ alone is the explanation for our lives. Why do you do what you do? Why are you so different? It's because of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God that lives within me. You want to know about it? Well, go look it up. Google it. No. Don't Google it. Let me tell you. And then share the gospel with them. We must set our minds to living out the demands of disciples by the strength of the Holy Spirit. We seek to know what pleases Christ. And we give ourselves to it without reservation. Well, because we are in a relationship to Christ, because He is has stewardship over us because we're his workmanship, he prays for us. And by the same token, because we are in a relationship to Christ, because he is faithfully exercising stewardship over us, and because he has worked his glory in us, we must never satisfy ourselves with anything less than seeking to live to the glory of Jesus Christ. And I remind you that you do not exist for yourself this morning. You're in this world For the glory of Christ. Live like it. And you can. You know how I know you can? Because Jesus Christ is praying for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven.